Hello and welcome to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is John Keeley and this is the 451st show of ROI. Our guest for today's show is Leo Landis, curator of the State Historical Society of Iowa, who is going to talk to us about Iowa and the influenza pandemic of 1918 to 1920. The history buffs for today's show are Terry Toppler and Brett Menard. The show's theme song is Kayla's Theme, which was written and performed by Mark Zap Zaptel. Our producer and engineer is, as always, Mr. Dave Baker. To begin with, we'd like to welcome you to the show. Leo, how are you doing? I am doing well. Thanks so much. It's a pleasure to have you on. Uh, we first we call this first segment History is Local, and our goal is to give our listeners a little background on today's subject. Can you start us off with some basic information and how and where the great influenza pandemic of 18 to 20 started? Sure. The pandemic gets its start actually in Kansas, and the the vector all throughout the Midwest is military bases. So there are soldiers who have been in Europe and coming back and forth. And in the spring of 1918, there's a small outbreak uh, in in one of the bases in Kansas. And so uh, presumably, you know, it is an avian strain, but there's a belief that it, it then is transmitted to humans via uh, hogs. And so through the Kansas uh, development in the spring, it lays dormant as influenza tends to do through the summer. And by August, you start seeing in newspapers across the country and across Iowa references to influenza in Europe. And so there, there's at least a small uh, inkling that something's going on. And then by September, you really start getting the development of this vicious H1N1 strain of influenza affecting soldiers. And and, uh, for Iowa, it's men who have been at Camp Devens in Massachusetts, just a little northwest of Boston, who have been in Europe, have come back, been at Camp Devens, and then are coming in to Camp Dodge in central Iowa is one of our main training bases, though Rock Island certainly has uh, some some men coming back and forth, too. So that's the real start of it is that military aspect of it. Okay. Could you please inform our listeners how exactly the, um, the disease of influenza, uh, how did this pandemic affect people? And I hate to, don't want to sound morbid, but how did it kill them? It, it it is uh, you know a viral infection, so you catch it, uh, you develop the symptoms that that we think of with flu today. But uh, when the when when the cause of death is is ruled, it's pneumonia. So the uh, you know swelling in the lungs and the collecting of fluid in the lungs is what really is going to kill people. And what's whereas influenza had been around for you know thousands of years, but this strain has a devastating effect on young people, which you know, we historically think of young people as being the more resilient. Well, if you are in the age of 20 to 40, influenza hits you really hard. And if you're younger than the age of five, it's not to say that people outside those ranges don't die, but it's really that 20 to 40 range where you think of people in the prime of their lives who, you know, 
start developing the sniffles and maybe a cough and uh, running a fever. And then the next thing you know, they're bedridden in a day or two, and they start having the fluid gathering in their lungs, and they die of pneumonia within, you know, maybe a a three to five day period. And so it was just uh, staggering to see a young person, young woman, young man die that quickly of pneumonia. Uh, Being that we're focused on the state of (laughs) Iowa, what area or cities or regions of the state got hit the hardest um, I'm, I'm going to let you take the lead on this, but I'm asking like per population or total number of deaths or per, per person. Um, answer it any way you'd like. Certainly. Well, Des Moines obviously is one of the early places where it, it really starts to affect our state, but it then does spread all across the state. There's occasionally, you know, towns that uh, have... Uh, less effect, but from, you know, far northwest Iowa uh, down to Lee County, uh, it it affects the whole state. And and when I talk about, you know, some of those deaths in Camp Devins, uh, there are three men from Scott County, two or three men from Scott County who die at Camp Devins in uh, September period. So you start seeing Iowans in the military die, as I said, in in, uh, late September. And then by October, it's really taking off. And so uh, we have our state uh, uh, health department at the time uh, issuing a quarantine across the state. So that idea of a quarantine, Dr. Guilford Sumner, uh, he's the head of the Iowa Board of Public Health. We issue a uh, state quarantine on October 17th. And and. Ames had put a quarantine in effect in October 10th. Well, Ames has the Student Army Training Corps who have been uh, interacting with people at Camp Dodge on occasion. So Ames gets hit pretty hard early on uh, as well. Uh, Des Moines actually put in its own quarantine October 10th before uh, the statewide quarantine is put in effect on the 17th. Same with Ames on October 10th. So central Iowa takes off a little sooner. Uh, Sioux City, you start seeing uh, schools closed on October 16th. Uh, picture houses and, and theaters, uh, meetings are closed. Uh, I know in uh, uh, Scott County, you start seeing uh, things happening, as I said, with uh, the uh, effect of, of influenza taking place, uh, quarantine being discussed on the, the 16th of October. And uh, by October 30th, you know, there have been over a thousand cases reported statewide. So uh, the idea that people, you know, had dealt with influenza before, but it's it's been about two months and then there's still talk that some people aren't taking influenza seriously. Okay. Um one last uh, question here before we go to our break. Um, were there areas that um, were pretty much, were there small towns that were wiped out? Because if I recall, uh, not in Iowa, but Illinois, in Lincoln, Illinois, they had like the, I read somewhere, the highest per capita of people dying from influenza in the nation. It just, and it was a relatively new town and it just rocked them. Does Iowa have a small town where the per capita is just out of this world? 
You know, I have looked at small towns pretty well. Uh, I'm not aware of anybody that gets hit quite that hard, but I do. I think of, you know, Primgar, which is the county seat of O'Brien County, northwest Iowa, not quite far northwest Iowa, but up there in the corner uh, of the state. And so I think it was a town of maybe around 2,500 at the time, so a smaller still county seat town. And uh, you do see a, a number of people you know, contracting influenza in small towns across the state. And I think just by the nature of lower populations and having, uh, you know, that uh, effect in a small town like that. And, and you know, one, it was uh, a man and his sister. He had been the uh, superintendent of the schools in Ocheden, Iowa, and she was a young woman about to get married. He had been uh, uh, coming back from leave in October and she is ill, he catches it from her, and they both die within about a week of each other. So uh, you do see just tragic, uh, disappointing, saddening stories, sad stories like that. Okay. We have a lot more to talk about, so please stay tuned for the next segment of our show. This is ROI on KALA, St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. Find out what song is airing on KALA now, or a song that recently aired. It's all at the KALA website. Find out the artist, song title, and album source. It's on the KALA website. Find out what's playing on 88.5 FM, 106.1 FM, and The Stinger now at KALAFM.org. That's KALAFM.org. Hello and welcome back to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is John Keeley and this is the second segment of our show referred to as The Kitchen Table. Our guest for today is Leo Landis, curator of the State Historical Society Society of Iowa, and we're talking about Iowa and the great influential pandemic from 1918 to 1920. Our history buffs for today's show are Brett Menard and Terry Toppler. And Terry, why don't you start us off? Okay, thank you. Yeah, Leo, you mentioned um, that some of the worst place hits at the beginning were the military bases. And I don't know that many Iowans uh, even know about Camp Dodge in Des Moines and how that was hit so severely. Can you talk about what the soldiers experienced at Camp Dodge in 1918? Sure. So Camp Dodge is, you know, a base that's just north of Des Moines. So there were rail lines and and by then automobile travel too, but uh, interurban rail lines that could move people back and forth. And by 1920, Des Moines is our, our largest uh, population town city in the state and uh, there were tens of thousands of men there uh, I think at its peak it could handle around 30,000 men maybe a little bit more and uh, training at the camp and so barracks just you know by the dozens and for an example on October 8th uh, on that day alone there were 996 diagnoses of influenza. So almost a thousand men in one day, and, and there were probably some women in that count actually when you put nurses in too, so don't want to say that it was just men. And and then through the, the period of the pandemic 
uh, into December, more than 10,000 soldiers were hospitalized there. So, you know, 10,000 is a, a, a pretty good sized town in Iowa. So to think of, you know, through the period of the pandemic, having 10,000 men hospitalized and, and at Camp Dodge alone, uh, 702 people died. So a pretty significant instance, both of spreading influenza to parts of the state, and then also just the devastation that was happening to the men and women who were serving there. Brett. Can you talk to us a little bit about how hospitals dealt with these surges? We've uh, seen a lot contemporarily about how hospitals are dealing with uh, the various COVID waves. What was it like uh, back then? And and what's interesting is that there are, to a degree, waves as well in Iowa and, and other parts of the nation, too. But when you look at Iowa, there's kind of this uh, mid-October wave. And when quarantines are put in effect, it starts to slow things down. And so, as I said, you know, you've got an early October, first two weeks of October date at Camp Dodge, where you've got 996 cases uh, you look at the then the tri-cities there you're not quite the quad cities yet but you get another surge in late november uh early december and it could be tied to uh uh people the lid comes off is the term they use in saying okay we we've weathered the worst let's get back to normal and so you see this uh rise again in september or excuse me december uh early december of uh, 1918. And so uh, in the Davenport Democrat and leader of uh, December 4th, you see a story saying flu hospital fast filling with patients. So you get another wave of illnesses that that after that initial October surge uh, takes back off. And so you have schools that uh, will closed down like we had in 2020 and and might be closed for four to six weeks to try to avoid another mass uh, spreading of influenza. Uh, To take this a step further in a different direction, um, I had read that in Evanston, Illinois, during the entire pandemic, not a single person died. Now, my grandmother, who was born in 1907, And she was alive. Uh, She died in 2004. I asked her, I said, how did Evanston come out of this without losing a single person? Because Evanston back then was a wealthy suburb of Chicago, still is. And my grandmother was, in her youth, lived in a very, very wealthy environment. And I said, how was this possible? And she looked me square in the face and she said, martial law, that the local community came down and decided to be they were incredibly militant and they followed laws and if you were in the wrong place at the wrong time you were arrested on the spot there was no question she said rights were definitely overlooked is there any place in iowa that you know of that followed that really harsh model and again we have those arguments today that what about my rights but evanston did not lose a single person in the pandemic have you did you come across anything like that you know, I don't know any town in Iowa, and, and Evanston certainly could be an outlier in any case where uh, there, I know Clear Lake 
uh, for a time seemed to dodge uh, or have a very mild uh, set of uh, outbreak of an outbreak, whereas uh, I don't know that that any community was untouched in Iowa. Truth be told, I, I know of some small towns where uh, they even, you know, much like today, said, you know, oh, the masks aren't helping. Uh, and so they took out their mask mandate, and uh, I think it's a Marshall County town. It's escaping me now. But you, you don't, to my knowledge, I mean, it, that that big statewide quarantine issued by Dr. Sumner uh, does kind of put a stop to it. Uh, the colleges had had quarantines in, in place across the state, uh, University of Iowa, Iowa State. Uh, Iowa State was issuing passes to get off and on campus for a time. So Iowa State had some very uh, regimented policies on uh, getting on and off in and out of Ames from, you know, and, and at that time, campus was really distant from town. And so you would have to have a pass in uh, uh, Ames to be able to leave campus at times. So there were some very serious uh, restrictions. But in the case of Ames, because you had that uh, SATC, the uh, Student Army Training Corps group, uh, moving back and forth, uh, and at times to Camp Dodge, that always continues to, to cause some death. So we've got a death certificate from a, a young man, Eldon uh, Friel, who was serving uh, in the Student Activity Training Corps, who, you know, he's, you know, essentially quarantined, but he catches the flu and, and he dies at Ames. So uh, I don't know that anybody was able to truly shut down influenza in Iowa. Okay. Uh, Brett. <laughs> How did the uh, schools respond? You said some of them uh, shut down. Was that long-term, temporary? How did that work out? It, it, it worked out pretty well, if you want the short answer. And, you know, I thinking eastern Iowa, I think Comanche shut down for about four weeks in December to early January. Uh, LeClaire shut down for a while. Uh, I know that uh, Lone Tree shut down. Uh, so in, in eastern Iowa and across the state, you would have what they said, you know, put, put, put the lid on schools. And so uh, Jefferson, Iowa, in central Iowa, uh, Green County, so a little northwest of Des Moines, uh, you see even small, smaller county seats like Jefferson uh, putting putting a quarantine in and shutting down schools. So, the what what we went through in 2020 and and uh, you know some of 2021 where uh, schools were were closing was was not out of the norm. And that did have again through that December period is when this tended to happen. Uh, where they really shut down when you couldn't open windows. And that was part of the, like the October uh, quarantines when those were put in effect. Uh, there were some towns after the statewide uh, quarantine is lifted uh, in October that uh, the uh, churches can be open if they have their windows open and things like that. So, uh, and, and there were local ordinances too, as I said, you know, m most towns had their own uh, ability to create 
guidelines for how to handle the pandemic. So uh, when you look at the larger towns, uh, the quarantines would go up and down and whether a school was staying open, that would be up in most cases to the school board. And uh, I'm not trying to you know draw too many parallels, but that was how it was handled in the 1918 pandemic was that uh, individual schools could handle could could address the the closures as they saw fit. Terry. Yeah, can you talk about um, the vaccination? Was there one? Um, I had read that there was one later developed by the Mayo Clinic, but there were also a lot of what I would consider odd and useless treatments that were propagated during this time period when there appeared to be no treatment at all. Right. There there really wasn't an effective uh, influenza vaccine at the time. There was some experimentation, and you will see some references to it. But because it was a new strain uh, and didn't understand the virology of uh, in, in the entirety of having to use, you know, uh, some of the, the virus that is causing this one, uh, even then, if you had a, a real influenza vaccine, unless you were addressing the specific strain of H1N1, uh, it wouldn't have been effective. And that was the case, was there really wasn't an effective uh vaccine at the time. So really quarantining and masks were the main effective ways and air circulation uh, were the main ways of of trying to keep people healthy. And in, in some communities, they would put a quarantine sign in a window of a house to, you know, that the local health board would kind of put that scarlet eye, it wasn't really a scarlet eye, but making a parallel to the scarlet A of the scarlet letter, that you would have a placard at your door saying this house is quarantined. So that was the level of kind of, we would say, you can't do that because of HIPAA today. Well, that was how the communities would often address it, is to quarantine homes and have a placard in the window to warn people to stay out of that home that it had influenza. And that was done for other diseases, too. Uh, It wasn't just influenza. Um, Okay, let's... I'm sorry. Go on, Terry. I was just going to say, because I remember as a child living in Coralville, when one of my sisters came down, I can't remember if it was the measles or the mumps, but we had a quarantine sign put on our front door, you know, during that time. Exactly. So you have lived that in your lifetime. And that, no. I think, sounds so foreign to us today. But that was a standard uh, medical practice through the 1940s and 50s in some communities. Uh, let's bring the issue kind of back to the state, uh, of course. Um, uh, Governor Reynolds is going to be judged down the road by state historians on how well she, uh, her administration and the legislature dealt with the pandemic. Um, Was this a huge state issue back then? Uh, Was the governor of Iowa at the time uh, making out or having state orders of things should open or should be closed? So Governor William Harding was our governor at the time. He actually did come down with influenza, and so he was ill for about a week, uh, right around the election, if I remember right. I think it was early November when he catches the flu. Uh, but he was a he was a fairly popular gov- not fairly he was an incredibly popular governor. Uh, it was felt like he was managing our effort in World War One. 
and you know that's so important to keep in mind too is that uh you know it's both the war and the pandemic and so the idea was that he was managing our state uh well and he was beloved uh and in fact is reelected while the pandemic is uh in effect so uh governor harding was was uh well regarded and i think part of it is that other than that statewide uh, quarantine that took place in October, the, the state mostly uh, did an advisory role and left it the decision-making up to the communities. And so uh, we didn't have a, a strong, I mean, we had, we had an active uh, state Department of Health, but not in the way, or it was the Iowa Board of Public Health is what it was called then, uh, but not in the same way that uh you know the the Iowa Department of Public Health took a, a lead this this time around and in fact Guilford Sumner who I've referenced a number of times he was consulting with the US Surgeon General on whether we should put a quarantine in effect so it was something he had to sell to Governor Harding and and I don't think the from what I've seen I don't see much interaction with the legislature at all it was all uh Dr Sumner taking the lead and uh, relying on his guidance uh, and and so then transmitting it to the local level based on local conditions. So he was our our, our uh, Dr. Fauci of the state of Iowa. Brett, can you talk a little bit about how um, like government services were impacted by this? Did you see a market drop in things like track trash collection or, or anything like that? Sure. Uh, you know, we have this idea just to address that specific part uh, individually. Most people burned their trash at this time, so you didn't have that being an issue. Uh, you know, if if you had refuse, it went into uh, your furnace in most cases or your cook stove or whatever it was. Uh, so, didn't have an issue that way. Uh, thinking of, you know, things that we think of as uh, uh, issues like shopping, uh, that wasn't affected much, you know, thinking of where you did see uh, some imposition is because automobiles were just coming into mass production at this time. And so, streetcars and public transportation was such a big deal was you did see a little bit more regulation on uh, capacities of streetcars and that rail travel was in some cases uh, limited. So uh, having imposition on, you know, things that we don't necessarily think about today because they're not part of our lives, but uh, public transportation and then uh, more extended transportation were certainly being regulated and uh, the, you know, not necessarily a public service like we've been talking about, but, uh, you know, many more people percentage-wise were attending church at the 1918 period. And so there was much like, you know, people could go to Zoom church uh, in 2020. Uh, that wasn't an option in the the. 1918 pandemic, and so that was a uh, maybe a disruption to uh, people's lives. Uh, when we come back, we'll wrap things up, so please stay tuned. This is ROI on KALA, St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. 
you're listening to Relevant or Irrelevant. This series is produced at St. Ambrose University's KALA Radio and has been honored by the Midwest Broadcast Journalists Association and the Iowa Broadcast News Association for excellence in public affairs journalism. You can hear this edition of ROI and many previous programs in this series by visiting Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, plus Apple Podcasts. ROI airs Friday nights at 9.30 p.m. on KALA HD2 and can also be heard at 106.1 FM in the Metropolitan Quad City area. You can stream this show every Friday night at TuneIn.com. Search for KALA HD2. This concludes the 451st show of ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant. Our producer and engineer is Dave Baker. Our program manager is Rick Sweet. And the theme song for our show is titled Kayla's Theme, which was written and performed by Mark Zap Zaptel. My name is John Keeley, and we would like to thank our guest, Leo Landis, curator of the State Historical Society of Iowa, who talked with us today about Iowa and the great influenza pandemic of 1918 to 1920. The history buffs for today's show are Brett Menard and Terry Toppler. This is ROI Relevant or Irrelevant on KALA. The views expressed on this show are not necessarily those of St. Ambrose University or KALA. We would like to wish all our listeners to experience the great Basutu proverb, Hotso Pulanala, peace, reign, and prosperity. And remember, historians are horrible fortune tellers. Good night. <laughs>